Amen. Well, good morning uh, and welcome to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim Spanberg. Uh, for those of you uh, who have been around Olathe for a while, you, you may recognize me. Uh, I was on staff here a year ago um, as the pastoral fellow um, and then went out with about 110 of your, your good friends to start the Shawnee campus where I've been for the last, um, the last year. And so Nathan and I are, are swapping uh, pulpits this morning. He's up in Shawnee preaching. I'm, I'm down here um, in Olathe. So those of you that, uh, that I recognize, that I've seen before, it's so good to see you um, again and to be here uh, uh, with you. And also to say, sort of as a representative of those um, at the Shawnee campus, uh, we miss you. Um, really, really miss you. At least most of you. Um, we miss you. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, Nathan talked about someone with a really long beard coming here last week. Apparently he took a shot of my beard or something. And just just so we're clear, um, listen, I have to grow it where God gives it to me, okay? And <laughs> for whatever reason, he gave me nothing on my head, but he gave me thick, luscious hair on my face. So I'm not going to question God. I'm going to let that go. Uh, so, so it's good to be with you. It's been, an, it's been exciting last year in Shawnee. Um, all kinds of stories I could tell, but just to say that, that I think what the last year for me at least has been is, is how beautiful and hard church can be, right? God calls us to go and to go out of our comfort zones into new places, so that means leaving friends behind sometimes, um, but he also calls us to, to add people into his kingdom, and so this morning it's exciting for me to think Nathan's in there like, did that person go, I don't recognize hardly any of these people, like where, do they go to Olathe, do I know them, do I not? He's, he's freaking out right now, whereas I don't have that problem because um, I get to see some of you friends and new uh, people as well. I mean, that's, that's been the last, um, the last year, and so um, just as someone who's now at a, at a different campus, let me just encourage you to keep up um, your generosity in the many ways, to, to be willing to say goodbye to your friends and encourage us in the way you did with sending us out was an amazing um, experience for me, and, and keep up your, your generosity here at Olathe. Um, the last year has been an incredible year for us as a church in terms of, of how we've grown, and especially, I think when we get, look back on what God has done the last year between our two campuses, it's going to be a pretty amazing story, and so thank you for all you've done to make it Make it possible. Um, I'm excited to be here with you um, this morning and to preach from, from God's Word and spend some morning, uh, some time this morning with you. Um, so with that, let's, let's pray and let's jump into Matthew 1 together. God, uh, Jesus, when he, he, he was on earth, so that he came to, to give us life, to give life and to give it to the full. And so God, there, there are those of us in this room who know that's true and, and need that abundant, rich source of, from your Word. So would you, would you feed us? And God, there's some of us in this room who, who used to experience that, who, who haven't experienced that. God, they're longing for you. They feel distant from you. Would you show up and be present now in your word through your son Jesus to them? And God, for all of us in here who have never, um, never made the step, aren't Christians, and, and aren't sure who this Jesus is or what he's done, would you, would you just give us a cl- the clearest possible picture of who Jesus is? No, no question, no doubt, no no. No background noise, God, just a clear picture of who Jesus is. God, I cannot do that. And so I ask your spirit to do that through me now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two stories. One true, one false. Sunday night, November 1st, it's game five of the World Series. Bottom of the 11th inning, tie game two to two. When my nine-month pregnant wife, Misty, walks out into the living room and says, Tim, I think I'm going into labor. So I look at the TV. I look, I look back at my wife, and I say, I understand. 
But this is the World Series. <laughs> Can we wait and go to the hospital until after the game is over? Uh, to which my wa- wife responded, how could, you, how could you even ask that? Of course we would wait until after the game is over to go to the hospital. <laughs> so in the next 45 minutes, the Royals win the World Series. Uh, a friend comes over. We rush to the hospital. Uh, Missy's labor was increasing at a rate that was not the rate at, at our past, with our past kids. So we get to the hospital. They rush us up to the room. The nurses are frantically working, trying to get things ready. And I can tell they want me to do something. My wife's in pain. They want me to go and comfort her to, to provide some solace, relief. And so I, I know they want me to do this. So I ask Missy, hey, do you, do you want me to come and be near you? Do you want me to, to, hold, your, to hold your hand? To which Misty responded, of, of, of course. I want to share in this beautiful moment of childbirth together. <laughs> so a few more minutes pass, and she is in the most amount of pain I've ever seen, frankly, any human being in my entire life. I've, I'm hearing sounds from her I've not heard from anything or anyone, when suddenly she just screams out loud enough for the, the whole floor of the hospital to hear, praise God for the miracle of childbirth. And about five minutes later, our son Abel was born. Story one. Story two. Sunday, November 1st, game five of the World Series, tie game two to two, and in walks my nine-month pregnant wife, and she says to me, Tim, I think I'm going into labor. So I look at the TV, look back at her, and I say, Let, let's call your doctor. And thankfully, the doctor was doing what I was doing, because his advice to us was to wait an hour and then call him back. <laughs> so we actually, we waited 45 minutes. The Royals win the World Series. It's clear there's a baby coming. So we get in the, get in the car. We rush off to the hospital. The, the nurses, they're working frantically. They get her up to the room quick. It's clear this thing's going to happen soon. And, and Missy's in a lot of pain. And I could tell the nurses want me to comfort her in some way, to do something. And so I... I look at Missy and I ask her a question knowing what the, the answer is going to be. Missy, do you want me to come near to you? Do you, do you want me to hold your hand? Uh, to which Missy did not respond with words but with a look. <laughs> a look so vicious it, it took three years off my life. And then she said, I don't want you to touch me. It's like I was actually thinking the same thing. Let's, we can do that. We can do that. A few more minutes pass, and it's clear she is in the most amount of pain I've ever seen a human being in my entire life. She's making sounds I've never heard from anything or anyone. When she, I mean, screams loud enough for the whole hospital floor to hear, I am going to die. (laughs) And I did what any husband would do in that moment. I just sat in the corner quietly begging God to make this stop. (laughs) About five minutes later, he made it stop, and our son Abel um, was born into the world on November 2nd, early um, in the morning. Right, and I have to tell you what story is true, right? I mean, any of us who have ever been a part of a birth of a child, a birth of a human being, knows it's, it's always intense, it's always painful, it's always chaotic, it's always, frankly, dangerous. And in the end, with God's protection, His provision, it's beautiful. And so reflecting on, on the birth of my son, as well as Matthew 1 in the last couple of weeks, the, the passage Chris read for us earlier, it just struck me it, that God could have entered the world any way He wanted, And he chose childbirth. 
I mean, think, think of that for just a minute. Like God, God could have, could have rode in on a golden chariot, could have created a flock of unicorns and flowed in and made an announcement, but he doesn't. He, he's born like all of us are born. And when you even take that a step further, you think about the lives you and I are, are in right now. My guess is every one of us either went to bed last night fearing something, afraid of something, wanting rescue from something, or we woke up this morning, we're thinking through, God, is God going to show up here? Is he going to do something here? Is he going gonna to make himself known to me? And to those settings, to those situations, what good is a baby? Why would God do it like this? That's the question I want to push into this morning. Think of our broken world, right? The many things wrong in our own lives. When we look around the globe, what's wrong with this place? What good is a baby to all of that? Why would God do it this way? When I look in Matthew 1, I reflect on that question. It's clear to me a couple of things, right? One, that the Christmas story reveals how broken and our pro- the, how big the problems you and I face are in this world. It shows us what our problem is. And two, it shows what you and I need to get out. What we really need to be rescued. It shows us our problem and, and what we need. So let's look at Matthew 1 under those two headings. First, Christmas shows us what our problem is. What's interesting to me is it's not just that Jesus is born. He does childbirth, which is absurd enough as it is. But he actually then seems to pick the worst possible way to be born. Right? That he's born. Jesus is born into apparent adultery. That Mary's pregnant and Joseph, her fiancé, is not the father. And this, this comes out in, in verses 18 through 25 when it would appear Mary may not have ever had a conversation with Joseph where we don't, we don't have that recorded where Mary says to Joseph, hey, I'm pregnant, it's, uh, it's a miracle. Um, and Joseph's like, no, it's not. Um, and right, it's, it's, it seems that, that Mary just was pregnant one day. Joseph saw him or saw her pregnant. So one, Jesus is born into aberrant adultery, but two... This throws Joseph into the middle of, of a great scandal. All right, we see that in verse 19 where Joseph says, he's in good conscience, he can't marry his fiancée anymore. He has to divorce her. Because right, what's he going to do? If he marries her, then everyone thinks either he, he sinned against his fiancée, slept with her before their marriage, or they think he married the girl who slept around on him, and his child, is the son that, that was born, is not his. There's no way out of this for Joseph that, that does, it doesn't involve shame, right? Or even if he divorces Mary, right? He loses his fiancée, but he still lost his reputation, right? His fiancée was the one who went out on him. Right, it's almost like God says, you know, I want to enter the world, and as I'm entering the world, I want to ruin two people's lives to, do, to go along with it. Right, he comes in the absolute worst way imaginable. Why would he do it like this? Imagine that, that moment with me, that Joseph finally sees Mary is, is pregnant, that his fiancée is, uh, ha- is going to have a child, it's not his. The, the Gospel according to St. Matthew is a movie made in the 1960s that depicts this moment in a really beautiful, sort of hauntingly beautiful way. And take a look at the picture of Joseph, the moment he sees Mary pregnant, the sadness, the agony, the horror. This is not a hallmark happy Christmas movie. This thing is falling apart fast. And frankly, only an intervention of God is going to prevent this, this whole story from derailing before it even gets on the tracks. And that's exactly what God does. He comes to Joseph through an angel and tells Joseph exactly what God wants him to hear. So hear what God tells Joseph through the angel. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's interesting is when the angel first speaks to Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David. Which doesn't mean much to us because we don't call anyone son of David. But in that day, that's a royal title. Not unlike the title President of the United States or King of England, Prince of England. This is a royal title. It's as if the angel comes and says to Joseph, King Joseph, that a son of David meant you were in the line of the throne of David. And the throne of David in the Old Testament was a throne God made outlandish promises to Saying essentially, someday a king in the line of David will come and reign forever in perfect righteousness, justice, peace, all of that. And so the irony shouldn't be lost on us. The angel is coming to Joseph saying, King Joseph, who in reality is a poor carpenter who lives in obscurity in a town that no one has heard of, and the only people who have heard of the town sneer at it and look down at it. This guy's anything but a king in a royal line. So why? Does the angel give Joseph this royal title? Well, some of that is what, Matthew, or what Nathan spoke to last week, the, where the Gospel of Matthew starts, the genealogy. Joseph is a descendant of King David. But the other hint that's there is when we get the name that he is to call this child, Jesus, which means God saves or God is salvation. And in Matthew, God is, the word saves tends to mean one of two things. One that we love and one that we hate. In the early parts of, of Matthew's gospel, the word saves is really reflective of the moments in our lives where we, we sort of yell, God save me, God rescue me. Or it's used to the disciples when they think they're drowning and Jesus is asleep at the bottom of the boat and they, they go down and they say, Jesus save us, we're going to die. It's used of a woman who had a, a medical condition for 12 years in pain, bleeding, and she thinks, she says, if I can touch his robe, I will be saved. And this is the saving we love and we all want, right? I mean, we all, like I said, we all have things in our lives that we look at and we want God to intervene, to come and interject himself and deliver us. And so before we press any further this morning, I would just ask, what, what is that for you this morning? What, what are you walking into wishing God would deliver, would save you from? What is that? Because Jesus does come to save us from those things, and he will, but that's not the reason he came the first time, primarily. Jesus does heal. We should pray for that. I absolutely believe that. But Jesus came primarily for a second reason. A way of being saved we don't necessarily like. See, about halfway through Matthew's gospel, the word save, stopping referred to, is not only referred to, to physical healings or the God save me moments, but actually begins to be connected to Jesus' death. He's going to save people by dying for them. And we know why in Matthew 1. He's going to save people from their sins. He's going to go and die to save his people from their sins. Sin. Kind of an over, overused religious type of, of word. If, if we know what it means, we probably don't like it or we, think, we don't think very much of it. What, what exactly is sin? I would say two things in terms of just the definition of sin. The first thing that sin would say to you is that your greatest problem is you. I know that doesn't mean much now. We'll unpack that more in a second. But the second thing that sin really is, is what the third century African theologian Augustine said, which is that you and I, we sin because we love good things, but we love them in the wrong order. Right? We love good things, but we love them in the wrong place. And so the result is 
We destroy our lives. Right? So if we love, in our culture, sex to such a degree that we've created websites that facilitate adultery or, or pornography is flourishing more than any other business in our culture today. Because we love sex, a good thing, but we love it to such a degree it destroys us. We love money, material things, to such a degree that even though I've never met a person who wants to be greedy or wants to not be a generous person, whether they're a Christian or not, I know far more people who are caught in debt or caught in an inability to be generous than who think they're actually being the sort of generous person they long to be. We love money, material things, good, good things, but we love them in the wrong order. Or we love our reputation to such a degree that when someone calls us out for something we did, did wrong, whether it's a friend, whether it's a, co- a student with us, whether it's a, a spouse or a kid, we, we can't repent. We can't acknowledge fault because we want our reputation to be maintained. So we can't acknowledge our sin before others. Because if we do, a good thing that we love, a reputation we love in a wrong order, in the wrong place. That all of us as human beings, we were meant to love God first, and then every other love was to fall under that. And the problem is not one of you, not, one of, not, not me, we none of us. Love God in the right place, in the first place. And so we look to these lesser things to actually be the things that rescue us from those. The thing we fear, we look to other things that we love more than God to rescue us. And so the question for us this morning is, is where are you looking for rescue? What is it that your heart loves the most? That today or, or later this week, when you're discouraged, that's where you're going to run. That's where you're going to go. That's what you're going to look to to bring you joy and stability and peace. In your moments of discouragement, where do you run? What do you think about? What do you, what do you long for? Is it God? Is it something else? That's the first thing sin reveals to us. We love the wrong things in the wrong order. And the real tragedy of that is not that we're breaking rules and we're, we're or, you know, there's the rule to love this thing in this order and we break it and God's mad because we broke the rule. The real tragedy of sin is that, is that sin makes us all self-made hostages. That we, we end up loving the wrong thing and we think, we go to it for rescue and the more we give, the less it returns. And what we end up is, as is, is hostages, stuck, loving the wrong things in the wrong places, unable to free ourselves, unable to get out, continuing to return to the thing that no longer saves us from anything, no longer rescues us from anything. And yet we keep loving it more than God. And I would say when you get to that place and you see that, you recognize that, you see that in your own heart, you're finally... I think able to understand why Jesus had to come the way he came, why he was born into obscurity and scandal like all of us. When I was in college, I read a book called Blue Like Jazz, and there's a story in there that maybe you've heard before, um, fairly well known, but there's a story of Navy SEALs who were going in to liberate hostages. <clears throat> and as they were, they were going in, they broke into the room, they, they get to the place where the hostages are, it's, it's dark, it's filthy, it's disgusting, they break in, and they assume the hostages are going to get up and run out with them, but they don't. The hostages don't move. They stay. Assuming that the people who had broken in through that door were there to harm them, just like the prison guards. And so the Navy SEALs have no idea what to do. The people they've come to liberate won't go with them. And so one of the SEALs, he takes off his weapon, takes off his armor, his helmet, strips all of it off, gets down next to the hostages and whispers to them, will you follow us? I think that story answers more than anything why Jesus had to come this way. 
to enter into our darkness, our filth, our sin, the things that we love more than God that have trapped us, enslaved us, so that he could stoop to our level, right? Take off all his glory, take off everything beautiful about him, his throne, to get down from his throne, to take off his crown, so that he could kneel to, next to us and say to us, you don't have to stay here. Will you follow me? But the reality is if God came like he really is, all of us would be terrified. But he doesn't. He comes as a baby, born in obscurity. He becomes a poor peasant to stoop to you, to stoop to me, so that we can know there's a way out of this. There's a way out of this. So Christmas, listen, if it says anything to you and me, it says your greatest problem is you. You love the wrong things in the wrong order. It's destroying you. It's enslaving you. You need a different life. You need something else. So that's a problem. What, what do we need? Okay. What's interesting is that the angel, when he's speaking to Joseph, he ends where he started. So the angel starts by referring to Joseph as, as, as King David, right? Son of David. And then he, he then quotes from the passage that explains why the house of David had fallen apart. Right? Because again, we can't miss the irony here that God is, or the angel is saying to Joseph, you're a king, but really he's a carpenter, he's poor, he lives in obscurity, he's nothing, he's not a king. To help us understand kind of the nature of this, since it's releasing this week, think back to Star Wars Episode Four, the very first one, um, Star Wars, that, that was released, right? And it starts with Luke Skywalker totally in obscurity in the middle of nowhere. He's this great Jedi who's going to save the whole universe or whatever, uh, whatever he does. Um, and, and, but he's in obscurity, and no one knows who he is, and, 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 and he's forgotten. Right? That basically, Star Wars just ripped off the story of the Bible. That's what happened. And so here, this obscure carpenter in the middle of nowhere is actually the father of a king. And the angel takes Joseph to the place to understand what is going on here. Isaiah chapter 7. It's the passage I made Patrick read with the the funny names. Um, It's always good to to make someone else read the funny names in the Bible. Um, It's Isaiah 7, and there's there's something happening there where Ahaz, who's the king of David in the house of David, reigning from Jerusalem, there are two kingdoms to the north that are going to come and attack Jerusalem. And rightfully, as a king, he's terrified, and he needs to figure out what to do. Terrified his people are going to die. Terrified he's going to die. Terrified the house of David will be destroyed. And so King Ahaz does not know what to do. So God sends Isaiah a prophet to tell Ahaz what to do. And Ahaz, according to Isaiah, according to the Lord through Isaiah, Ahaz has one job to do. Don't do anything. Don't do anything. And, And then God, on top of that, says, and in case you don't think that I'm going to take care of you, that I'm going to actually destroy those two nations. You don't have to trust in military might. I'm going to protect you. In case you have any doubt about that, you can ask a sign of the Lord, be it as high as heaven or as deep as, as Sheol. Basically, I will move heaven and earth. I will do whatever you want me to do to prove to you I will take care of you, Ahaz. You can trust me. You can put your faith in me. And then Ahaz responds by quoting the Bible back at God. I, I will not ask a sign of the Lord. Just so we're clear, when God says, I'm going to give you a sign, you name what it is, that's not a question. And it's not testing God when you do what God asked you to do. That Ahaz isn't testing the Lord by asking of a sign. And the reason Ahaz doesn't want a sign is because he's already done the exact exact thing God had told him not to do. 
that earlier in the book of Isaiah, God had said to Ahaz, do not go and trust other nations to protect you. I will protect you. But what Ahaz had done, he had gone to the biggest military power he could find, Assyria, the nation of Assyria. And he said, will you protect me against these two nations? And Assyria protected him. He paid tribute. And he had done the very thing God asked him not to do. Which was to trust God. That's all Ahaz had to do. He couldn't do it. And so Ahaz says, well, I don't, I don't need a sign from you. God essentially saying, you know, I've already, I've already figured this thing out. And so God responds and he says, you know what, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house, the house of David, such days as have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, when I first read Isaiah 7, thinking of Matthew 1, I was like, how in the world do these two things work together? How in the world does Isaiah 7 point forward to Jesus' birth? And what's interesting is, is God is giving Ahaz a sign. But it's a sign of judgment. And what God says to Ahaz is essentially, listen, there's a, a young woman, she's a virgin, she's going to get married, have a kid, and the time it takes her to get married and have a kid, two things are going to happen, Ahaz. One, the two kings you were so afraid of will be deserted, they'll be destroyed, just like I said they would be. And second, the king you trusted instead of me, the king of Assyria, he's going to come and invade Jerusalem and take it over. And the house of David will be no more. And that's what happened. The Ahaz was the last king of David reigning from Jerusalem. Everyone else in, in the rest of the Old Testament is a puppet king, someone that another government set up. No more is there a king of David ruling from the throne in Jerusalem. And the rest of the Old Testament unpacks that story all the way down until the sons of David aren't just puppet kings. They're actually carpenters in the middle of nowhere in obscurity and poverty, forgotten like Joseph. And yet, Isaiah 7 clearly isn't just a sign of judgment, is it? The who is this Emmanuel that Isaiah speaks of? It's unclear in Isaiah 7, but when you read Isaiah 8 and 9, it's clear there's another child in view here. The Isaiah 8 makes it clear this, this child, it will be born into poverty. He'll eat honey and curds. That's the, the food of the poor. And yet, this child will be in the line of David. And this child in the line of David will be born into poverty and be born into obscurity, but that child will become the greatest king over whom will reign the whole world. And so all this climaxes in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9 and verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 9 when we read this of Emmanuel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The angel is looking at Joseph and saying, that child in Mary's womb is Emmanuel from Isaiah 9. Come to rule as the good king, the righteous king, the just king, the peaceful king. 
That child is in Mary's womb right now. But that is what Matthew 1 is saying. And reflecting on Isaiah 9, I want to say two things about that. The, the first, right again here at the center of the Bible storyline is God's concern, not just for certain people in certain places, but for the whole world. Right? Of the, of the government, uh, or of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. Right? He will rule over all the world. His aim is for peace in all of the world. Right? We want to be a church. We are a part of a kingdom for all people. Right? And I want to be careful here. Right? This doesn't mean colonialism. This doesn't mean one race, one nation rules overall. One of the beautiful realities of the church is that today, this, this morning on Sunday, all over the world there are Christians worshiping God in their own languages, in their own nations, in their own places. Right? There's African Christians who are volunteering in children's ministry right now. There's Turkish Christians who have preached the gospel to their neighbors. There are African Christians leading the church forward. And so one of the things that we want to be about as a church is supporting those leaders in those places, to support indigenous leadership, right? to support African Christians in Africa, to support Chinese Christians in China, European Christians in Europe, Turkish leaders in Turkey, because God's kingdom is for all people, and he will call all people to lead forth in his kingdom as church. So that's first, right? This is, a, this is a kingdom, a government, a Messiah for everyone. But I also want to be careful here, right? Because here's where we could, we could break out our Christmas sweaters and put on Christmas music, get fuzzy, pour the eggnog in the cup, drink it down, and, and feel good about ourselves. But this is, this is actually a really threatening proposition. So I want to end our time by, by asking you the question, right? Emmanuel means God with us. And so let's ask, do you really want God with you? I mean, like, really, do you really want God to come up and live alongside you? Because look at Joseph. He had God near to him in a way none of us will, right? I mean, my guess is none of us will be the stepfather to the Messiah. Um, he's already come. That, that, that job is taken. None of us will be as near to God as Joseph was. And yet look what it did to Eli. It completely wrecked his life. For God to come near to Joseph, it meant one of two things. Either Joseph could try to save his reputation and leave the Messiah behind and forget about the son with Mary, or he could marry his fiancée and for the rest of his life be mocked, be looked down upon, be sneered at as the one who married the girl who had a child who wasn't his. And we see that in the rest of the Gospels. Jesus is mocked because Joseph wasn't his father, and no doubt Joseph was mocked. Like the choice is, is so clear, right? Joseph, you can try to save your reputation and leave God behind, or you can lose and wreck your life and be near to God in a way you could never have imagined. And friends, the Bible tells that story over and over again. If God comes near in your life, most likely it's going to get harder before it gets easier, if it gets easier. God has this tendency to, to just come into our lives and wreck the things we love most, right? And a part of that, if we remember what sin is, if we love the wrong things most, guess what God is going to go right for if he comes into your life? He's going to come, he's going to wreck those places of your life you hold most dear, you want to keep distant from him, he will not let you keep them distant from him. If God is going to be with us, he's going to be with us in all things. So students, what that means for you is that being a Christian at your school most likely means you have to say no to things that everyone else around you gets to say yes to. And it's going to be hard. Or adults, right? If you want God with you, imagine God did show up today and said, you know, let's, let's spend the week together Let's go home, let's have lunch, and the first thing I want to do with you, I want to, let's get out your bank statement, and let's talk about where you're spending your money. Who wants God to do that with him? Or imagine God says, you know, 
in heaven, we have these really great DVD machines. We rec- we've recorded your life for the last week. I want to watch it with you and talk about it. I mean, who wants that? I mean, who really, if we got down to it, wants God with us? Do you really want God with you? And C.S. Lewis, I think he put it best when he wrote this in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the, the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live at it himself. Emmanuel, God with us. And what that means is those parts of your house, your life that you've built up, that you're most proud of, most likely that's the part that's going to come down. And not because God is vindictive or because he's angry or because he's, he's vicious or because he enjoys watching us squirm, but because God wants to build something better in his place. And I realize that raises a huge question, right? That's not a, those are not empty words. That is, for some of you, a daily reality. God is knocking down parts of your life that you never thought he would, he would do. And so how can we trust God in the midst of a work that so often seems destructive to us. When he comes near to us, it it so often hurts more than encourages. How can we trust him? And two thoughts to that. One, Jesus, he's everything like you. He will never put you into something he has not been through himself. Remember, this is the God who took off all his glory, who came down from his throne, who took off his crown to stoop to you, to come to you as a hostage and say to you, you don't have to live here anymore. The one difference being when he took off his armor and his weapons, he was exposed, he was vulnerable, and this world took advantage of that and nailed him to a cross for it. But the Jesus, he enters our filth, our darkness, everything we do wrong, so that he can go to a cross to save us from it. He's everything like us, vulnerable, weak, and he died because of it. He's everything like us, and he's nothing like us. He's born of a virgin. Right? That's why Christians have held to the virgin birth. Not because we're naive or we're gullible or we like weird fairy tales, but because we know as human beings, another human being cannot save me from myself, cannot make me love the right things, cannot take me out of the self-made hostage life I've built for myself. I need more than a human being, which is why God became a spark in a Mary's womb. I have no idea how that happened, But God became a spark in a womb that became the son, Jesus. Not the son of Joseph, the son of God. Right, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the great emptier of tombs. He became all of that. So he's not just a human being who understands me. He's actually a God who can save me from anything I get myself into. He's Jesus, the son of David. The true David who comes to reign among us. Jesus, he's everything like you, and he's nothing like you. And so I would just ask, how could you not trust him? What could you give your love to, your trust to more than him, who's going to give up more for you than he gave up? 
who's going to love you more than he has loved you. And yes, it may hurt, it may destroy, it may wreck your life. But it's only for him to build a palace in place of the life you built for yourself. And you can trust him, right? You can trust the one who has emptied himself of everything glorious, everything good, to stoop to your level, to say, you don't have to stay here. Come follow me. Let's pray. God, I asked that question, do you want God with, with you? And I, I see in my own heart that many places I don't want you to come near. Or I want you to stay far and let me, leave me to myself. And God, I recognize it's only in seeing the glory of who Jesus is, seeing the beauty of, of Christmas and the beauty of the cross, even his death, that, that I'm loving the wrong things. And so would you now, as we sing, as we continue to dwell in your word, as we continue to, to look to your son, would you captivate our hearts with your glory that we would love Jesus, we would love you, our Lord God, above all else. God, save us from the things we love more than you. How foolish, how absurd. Lead us to a new place, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.